Welcome to the 466th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Today is the last day of February, the last day of Heart Month, the last day of Women in Heart Month. Shouldn't be. should be the first day of the rest of your life, Heart Month. But nevertheless... The American Heart Association gets Valentine's Day for Heart Month, so let's talk about some hearts. There is a genetic risk factor, which is a lipid marker called LP little a, and we know that 70 to 90 percent of the level is genetically predetermined. There are some things that increase it and a few things that decrease it, but for the most part, it is what it is. It is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and that people that have the highest level or very high levels tend to have more cardiovascular disease than people that have a low level. Most recently, it has been suggested that we start to worry about even moderate levels. And it's not unlike cholesterol. Back in the day, you know, before it was cholesterol 250, then 200, then 180, and we keep lowering the number, lowering the number, hoping to decrease cardiovascular incidence. And with some of these testings come anxiety and what can we do and therapies directed at lowering a number, but does it actually lower mortality? Because that's what we're all about when it comes down to at the end of the day. We like to decrease heart attacks and heart failure, but we also like to decrease death from cardiovascular disease. And so the question comes, is the problem with LP little a and over testing and finding more people with cardiovascular disease, because we're not testing people in their 30s, we're testing people in their 50s and 60s, And we find LP little a's that are elevated, which leads to perhaps a stress test, perhaps a calcium score, perhaps um, a little abnormality on those, which lead to a heart catheterization, which leads to stents in people that are perfectly asymptomatic at the time. So are we improving their quality of life by doing procedures and placing them on medicines Or are we just making them cardiovascular patients, which now they dial back what they can do because they're a cardiovascular patient, and as physicians, we say, don't do this because you have a bad heart. So there's a lot of things we don't know about LP little a. Um, One of the things that we do know is that it doesn't have to be activated, uh, just like most of our other genes. So it doesn't act by itself. If you have that, you're destined to have heart disease. It's what we do in our lifestyle that affects whether or not this particular particle becomes oxidized. And again, even what size of these little particles. So there's so much we don't know. There's so much variation in testing that I think the answer still should be, we all should try to live the best heart healthy life that we possibly can and do procedures when they're indicated in the pretest probability of trying to define something or change what were change the outcome is more likely. And part of the problem is that as physicians when somebody we start down the road of abnormal test we're afraid not to do more. So the best doctors, the best institutions are the ones that do the most testing. Um But again, nobody looks really at the overall mortality um, and morbidity or things that can go wrong with some of these testing. 
when it comes to lifestyle interventions, nobody's afraid to do less. So the typical answer is exercise and eat a heart-healthy diet, whatever that may be from your physician or primary care doctor. And it's left at that. But the doctor's held to a higher standard when it comes standard when it's come to intervention. So we have to do the stress test. If the stress test is abnormality, we're abnormal, then um, the standard of care would be to do the heart catheterization. If the heart catheterization is abnormal, then the standard of care would be to be proceed with more and more intervention. Oftentimes with medication, it's as much as you can tolerate. So as much blood pressure medication you can take so that your blood pressure is so low that you're just a little bit dizzy when you change position. That would be the right amount. The best amount of chemotherapy or radiation that you can tolerate to make sure that the cancer may not come back. We push things up to the tolerated amount of side effects. So not if they're going to have side effects, but how many side effects can you ultimately tolerate? And for a lot of the medications, the side effects aren't quite so obvious, and so we don't even associate it with the medication, so that we end up causing other problems that need other medications. The old adage, what doesn't kill you makes you better, is kind of the pharmacological approach to things. Some physicians, institutions uh, may go as far to say that it's okay to have a small number of people with a very adverse outcome as long as the majority of people do okay. It's much better accepted if you die after having a bunch of interventions as opposed to die not having changed your lifestyle. So we say we eat, um, try to eat more vegetables, try to eat less red meat, try to exercise more. And our guidelines are the bare minimum. So 150 minutes per week is the minimum amount of exercise to decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease. We leave the part out that um, the majority of it needs to be moderate to vigorous exercise and to get your heart rate up. But again, going through the motions, phoning it in, so to speak, 150 minutes if you can come up with it, then you're set. You don't need to do any more. We accept the better than nothing approach. Um, riding a bike has turned into riding electrical bicycle so that if you're out, well, at least I'm outside getting sun. I have heard things such as I have plantar fasciitis and my doctor told me that I should never walk um, for exercise again because it's just going to exacerbate it. Certainly knee pain um, is going to be exacerbated by running. So if anybody ever gets knee pain, it's because of the running, not because of the form or starting out or a whole host of other imbalances. I was told, I was told this week that um, somebody didn't have time to eat six cups of greens uh, or run a marathon because they're too busy. But the reality of it is it's what's your priority. Um, I hear all kinds of testimonials and podcasts and uh, blog reports of people that find all kinds of time to run long miles and do all kinds of exercise feats despite working full-time job with kids and things like that. And I guess you could say, well, somebody is getting neglected, something is getting neglected, maybe so, maybe not. In the endurance community with ultra running, most people are surprised that they can go further than they thought that they could. And some people refer to the fact that they've probably only tapped into 40% of their potential. 
Um, so we have a lot left over, even if you're pushing it into the endurance and ultra world. So the 150 minutes a week or the electric bicycle just doesn't seem like it's a good intervention if we actually want to prevent and reverse cardiovascular disease. There hasn't been many medications come out for heart failure, um, but in the last couple of years, there was a medication called Entresto that was released, and it was released based on a trial named the Paradigm Trial. And the outcome that the pharmaceutical representatives and the papers um, portray is that there's a 20% decrease in sudden death in the people that take the Entresto medication, the new medication. Um, there is uh, a decrease in a marker of heart failure um, significantly by 29%, a decrease, uh, a relative risk reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospital admissions by 42%. If you look into the absolute risk, the people that had it versus the people that took the other medication, it's more like 6%. But that wasn't the worst part of the study. And um, the reason, uh, the, if you really want to see a breakdown of the study, I'll make a reference to a physician that looks at um, uh, study drugs and or um, studies on medications and um, really presented a good, his name is Dr. Vignet Prasad, and I'll, I'll make a link to his YouTube video that he really lays this out very nice, but the reality of it is um, the standard of care for people with congestive heart failures to be on what's called an, angio two, an angiotensin converting enzyme or an angiotensin receptor blocker plus a diuretic plus a beta blocker. Um, and a lot of people have trouble with the ACE or the angiotensin, um, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor because um, there is a bradykinin response. So people can get swelling, severe swelling of their tongue, mouth, um, and it has to be stopped, or a chronic cough uh, because of a kind of an allergic-type reaction. Um, you can hear people have this, <clears throat> um, that's a subtle, can be associated with this ACE inhibitor. So one step down the, the chemical chain, this ARB, or angiotensin um, receptor blocker, was introduced, which eliminated that side effect. And so the ARB was put with a new medication, and the new medication's trade name is called Entresto, versus, um, and they went ahead and used for this trial the ACE inhibitor. So we already know that people don't tolerate an ACE inhibitor as well as they tolerate an ARB in a lot of instances. But they started with over 8,000 people um, that were already on therapy for heart failure. And they took them off the medication, and then they did a wash-in period where they gave them Entresto, and then they did a wash-in period where they gave them the ACE inhibitor. The problem was is that they didn't give them a very high dose of the ACE inhibitor because they were probably fearful that um, they might have the angioedema uh, outcome. So they really weren't therapeutic on the controlled medication. So they were giving a new medication versus a controlled medication that was a standard of care, but not um, adequate dosing in a lot of instances. So people weren't titrated on the medication to make them tolerate it. The other thing was that uh, during this run, there were two run-in periods. 
Um, and at the second run-in period, people were taken off their stable medication, put on this, this combination therapy, the Entresto, and then people were taken off and just put back on this ACE inhibitor. So you went from um, kind of a high-dose medication to a low-dose medication, and the clock started running with regards to the outcome, so side effects, heart failure, um, blood levels of this BNP, uh, hospitalizations. The other thing that happened was that out of the 8,442 people, 4,000 people were actually eliminated before the trial ever started because they couldn't tolerate this wash-in period of the medication. So either they couldn't tolerate the A, so they couldn't tolerate the new medication, or they couldn't tolerate the switch. And so they, they were not uh, entered into the study. So we have a study that a fair number of people couldn't tolerate the medication, and we don't know what would have happened to them. The people that could tolerate the medications went on to be randomized. So it makes it a little difficult to see whether or not the new medication was indeed uh, beneficial because the old medication wasn't titrated to the right dose, and a lot of people that didn't tolerate um, the medication were eliminated up front because they weren't given the chance to have an R versus an ACE. This is a very rare way of doing a study trial on a medication, and it's extremely rare for cardiovascular medication. So there's not much like it to con, um, been done before, and there's not been any confirmatory tests since. But yet this medication has been rolled out as standard of care for anybody that's in the hospital with congestive heart failure. And there's a whole host of side effects, worsening kidney failure. There's exclusion criteria um, that people can't tolerate it. Um, but nevertheless, a lot of hospitals make it on their list of um, care plans that it's mandatory that people are discharged on this medication. Of course, people in the trial were given free medication, and new medications often come with credit cards or so forth to help pay the copays early on so people don't fall in the donut hole uh, or have a copay with their insurance if they're less than 65. But the new medication for a month cost about $604 versus $24 for the old standard of care medication. So you can see there's um, a benefit for those prescribing um, and those interested in uh, promoting this medication. If you are on Medicare or know somebody that's on Medicare, um, when you're put on a medication that's expensive, the retail price goes against your donut hole um, so that you kind of get into the donut hole quicker. But once you're in the donut hole, then you pay full price for the medication. You just don't pay the copay. The reality of it is congestive heart failure can be quite readily managed through lifestyle intervention. Diet is extremely important. Salt intake is extremely important. And it's extremely difficult to decrease sodium intake without significant education. Beans alone can vary in sodium content from 50 milligrams per serving to over 650 milligrams per serving. Mustard, 50 milligrams to 110 milligrams of ser per serving. Um, you know, condiments, soy sauce can be anywhere from a cocoa aminos, 50 milligrams to full strength soy sauce, 650 to 750 milligrams of sodium. 
certainly when you go out, the pasta sauce not only has oil, but it has a significant amount of salt per cup, per quarter cup, actually, and that's much less than typically is used. So we eat more than a serving size. The serving size has high amounts of sodium. So going out and having soup is can be very detrimental to people that have heart dysfunction that could cause them to go into congestive heart failure. Pizza can throw people into congestive heart failure. But nevertheless, you can be you can manage it quite easy if you cook at home for the majority of times uh, and you watch your weight and medications can be titrated accordingly that are pretty cheap medications. But it takes a lot of education and a lot of feedback to be able to titrate your medications uh, and to be able to work with a healthcare provider that can educate you on the amount of sodium in products. And I would venture to say that most cardiologists and primary care people would flunk the test on six items and the sodium content in it. So you have people that don't pay attention to salt telling people eat a low sodium diet. They have no clue what it is. So it's easier just to deal out medications that are standard of care. The best way to track fluid status is simply weight. If you gain three pounds overnight, it's most likely going to be a retention of water, not having eaten, you know, three pounds extra worth of calories to make yourself gain three pounds of fat. It's almost impossible. So we watch people very closely and communicate with them. If they gain three pounds, we want to start to address it because the further behind you get, you may not notice swelling in your ankles or abdominal distension um, with the three pounds of water you can people can hide it pretty good the bigger you are the more you can actually hide but if you get six seven eight pounds of water on board then your stomach can actually be start to become thick and then you don't even absorb medications correctly so it makes it much harder to deal with so it's another reason why we stay on top of it and we work with people very closely Our members that work with us closely and pay attention to details don't have to go to the hospital. We brag that we don't have our patients go to the hospital because we can manage them closely and keep them out of the hospital without giving them any type of intravenous medications as an outpatient. We also know that being active decreases your risk of congestive heart failure. There was a study um, published in the Journal of American Cardiology that looked at 6,000 people, 63 to 99 years of age, and they looked at their activity. And for every 70 minutes of activity throughout the day, there was a 12 to 70% lower incidence of congestive heart failure. Um, on the other side of the coin, every uh, 90 minutes that's uh, sat in a chair and not moving is associated with about a 17% risk, increased risk of heart failure. Just walking will decrease the incidence of heart heart failure. There was, again, a study looking at steps to avoid heart failure. And if people can either walk or climb steps, but even if they couldn't climb steps, if they just walked um, over 5,000 steps a day, they actually could reduce their incidence of congestive heart failure. Now, that may sound easy to you, but somebody that has a limited cardiac function might have some shortness of breath. So it might take two or three different tries to get that level of activity. But again, continuous movement is associated with a better outcome. If you have the diagnosis of coronary artery disease and you are a woman, the 10-year mortality 
is 60%. If you do not have coronary artery disease and heart failure, the mortality is 27%. In men, it's 54% with coronary artery disease versus 36%. So take away women with coronary artery disease and heart failure have a much higher mortality than men but these are two risk factors that could be easily addressed with lifestyle interventions, unfortunately. There's a study that looked at what is the risk of dying in five years based on risk factors. They, it was an observational study. They looked at over 47,000 people. There were 1,639 people that died in a 5.2-year follow-up they determined 11 risk factors associated with the increased risk of dying in a five-year period. They were age, being a male or female, blood pressure, total cholesterol, how tall you were, your kidney function based on your creatinine, if you've ever smoked, if you had diabetes, if you have a thickened heart muscle called left ventricular hypertrophy, if you've had a stroke or a heart attack, and they looked at the scores for people and were able to determine risk of dying in a five-year period. So the scores were, you know, um, 10, 20. If you had a, a score of 10, you had a 0.1% chance of dying in 5.2 years. Score of 20, 0.3. Score of 30, 0.8. Score of 40, 2.3%. A score of 50, 6.1% and a score of 60, 15.6%. So what are the risk factors that you can control? So age is a risk factor you can't control. So age is a risk factor you can't control. If you're 35 to 39, you don't get any points, so that's good. You only start to accumulate points after 40. So 40 to 44-year-olds get five points. Remember, we're looking for, uh, you know, this total points accumulative uh, from 10 to 60. If you're 45 to 49, you get 9 points. 50 to 54, 14 points. 55 to 59, 18 points. 60 to 64, 23 points. 65 to 69, 27 points. 70 to 74, 32 points. That's as far as they went. If you're a man, you get 12 points. So if you're a 45 to 49-year-old male, you get 9 points for being your age and 12 points for being a man. If you've had a heart attack, you get eight points. A stroke, you get eight points. High, uh, thick heart muscle, three points. Diabetes, nine points. Smoking, somewhere between eight and 13 points, depending on how. So a 60, for an example, um, I'll do a two, two examples, actually. A 60 to 64-year-old would get 23 points for their age. If they had high blood pressure, they get another five points. If they were short, so a short woman gets four points, and they have a moderately elevated cholesterol, they get five points, would be 37. So 37 up on the scale gets you a 2.3% chance of dying over five-year period. So it doesn't mean, you know, so basically you wake up, you've got a 98% chance of living at 97 um, and a 2.3% chance of dying that day. So it may not seem much, but again, if you're 30 to 35-year-old or you only have 10 points, it's less than 1%. So there's a risk every day that um, you have this elevated risk. On the other hand, if you're 
68 years old, um, and you get 27 points, and you're a male, you get 12 points. Your cholesterol's high, six points higher. Blood pressure high, four points, 49, so 6% risk of dying. To fix that, to make it less than 1%, all you got to do is fix two risk factors. You can't fix being a man, you can't fix being 68 years old, but you can certainly fix your blood pressure and your cholesterol. So you can markedly affect your longevity or your risk of dying, on the other hand, by controlling risk factors such as cholesterol, kidney function, blood pressure, diabetes. Certainly, you'd like to avoid a stroke or a heart attack before you start down this realm. So if you haven't had those, avoiding those things would also decrease your risk. So you can really get into your 70s pretty easy if you just control a few risk factors. Unfortunately, it's not taking medication, so we've got to turn back the clock uh, by lifestyle and nutrition. So why wouldn't you want to do it? You have to have a plan, and you have to have some way of following. So just monitoring your blood pressure and your cholesterol is one thing. Monitoring your weight is one thing, but... The real thing that needs to be done, because the reality of it is you just keep going back to the doctor and getting your blood pressure checked, you keep going back and you're, you keep getting on the scale or you keep taking your blood pressure, it doesn't really change something. There's got to be a plan that you can implement and you have to be able to see how you're doing with your implementation, implementation as you're going. So how will you track it? How will you track how many times you eat out? Um, I talked to somebody today and... You know, it's how many days in a year, you know, people take holidays, right? So I'm going to do what I want when I go on vacation. Well, most people do if they go on vacation. So how many days a year do you go on vacation? 365 minus how many weeks of vacation do you take? How many days are holidays? So when you start to add up how many days that you give yourself free pass, it can start to be quite extensive. When you say, I don't eat so-and-so very often, or we don't go here very often, or we don't do this very often, but you've got about 15 things that you don't do very often, it can go ahead and sabotage what you're trying to do. So there's some way that you have to keep track of what your plan is and how, when, what kind of progress you're going to make. And it goes back to the simple calendar, I think, that is really easy, you know, um, you need to know what you're doing now, but then check on, you know, simple things. Did you go out or not? Did you eat out or not? Um, if you did go out, did you make a better choice? Instead of eating this or going to this place, did you go to this place? You've changed how you go out. So it's, it's very reassuring that you can make some changes and demonstrate those changes to yourself. And then you can see progress in how do I feel? What's my blood pressure? What's my cholesterol? What's my weight? But it has to be done with intention. Hoping to do better rarely results in doing better. The same thing, hoping never to do bad again or going for perfection also usually doesn't result in net improvement because you put too much pressure on going from what you're doing to being perfect and it just fails. So it's better to do things gradually. If you're going to train for a marathon, you're not going to run 26 miles the first day of training. You have to build up to it. So why not build up with your nutrition plan and your exercise plan? Again, a lot of people go out and they're going to walk, you know, they're going to do, start out walking very far. 
uh, and then get injured and then they stop. So it is a gradual plan to build up in a way that you can tolerate it, a way that's not uncomfortable, the way that's pleasant enough that you can have success. The other thing is you're going to have to play some head games. Uh, you're going to have to play some head games with yourself to justify why you're changing your behavior and why you like changing your behavior. I like the way it makes me feel. I've made these decisions. I were, was capable of being mindful. Um, you have to give yourself credit for the positives. And that's why I think it's important to track the positives more than track the negatives because you keep adding on to the good things that you're doing. What did you do that made you feel better? What was the change? Um, I use it in my rehab from injuries all the time. What exercises did I do the night before that made me feel better the next day? What kind of mobility made me feel better the next day? Or what did I do that maybe um, I didn't get as much progress out? But for the most part, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to worry about the things that are negative as much as I'm going to worry about what did I do to make myself feel better? So I'm going to continue to do those. And can I add on something that continues to make my progress go forward? Yes, I may do too much and I have to slide backwards a little bit. But the idea is what can I do to keep forward steady progress and keep those things, celebrate the wins and keep moving forward. And the last thing I want to discuss tonight is safety when you're running. Um, this past week, a young nursing student was um, brutally beaten and killed at the University of Georgia, running in, a, in the daylight in a safe section of the campus. She told her roommates when she was going. She took her phone. She told them when she would be back. They reported when she didn't arrive. Everything was done appropriate, and yet she was killed. And I think um, it is a shame that women in 2024 are still so vulnerable to being attacked, doing something harmless and something positive, um, not much different than, you know, in the medieval times. Um, and I, I think that you can't be too careful. If, you know, I run with two German shepherds. I don't use headphones, uh, and if I do use any kind of, listen to any music, it's a noise, it's not a noise canceling. Um, I usually have either something I can hear my surroundings or only one earbud in. But for the majority of times, I do not use headphones, especially with the dogs, but so I can hear what's around me. I keep my head on a swivel looking for anything out of the, out of the, um, out, out of the norm. Um, you know, I always told my daughter, you know, bad men, bad people don't always look bad. They can look very normal. Um, the picture that was posted of this girl, if you saw him on the street, you would not think that he was a killer. Um, so looking like a killer is not always a good clue. If you have earbuds in or you can't hear, you don't see, see people coming uh, up on you or behind you. Um, I wear a watch that has alerts on it that if something happens, um, uh, an alert is sounded. So if I were to fall to the ground even, I have to deactivate it because an alert is sent to, um, to someone so that they can respond. Having some way to track you, having a, certainly having a plan, telling people where you're going and how long you're going to be gone is very important. 
I do think that people, especially women, need to carry some sort of protection, whether it's mace, a knife, um, but I think that it's, it's important to have some protection. Um, it can't be too safe. If you're going to carry something, you need to know how to use it. People will always say that, well, it could be used on you. Not if you know how to use it and not if you have some basic self-defense um, skills and have a plan of what you're going to do. Um, I run in an area that I know probably somebody on every street that I go on to or at least a house. They may not be friends, but there's, it's something familiar so I could go for help or where I would go if there was a problem. Um, having an exit plan, an action plan is very, very important. If someone comes up to you or approaches you, they are going to harm you. If somebody, if somebody comes at you, they're, they're, they're not going to just hurt you a little bit and you're not going to talk them out of it. So you have to be ready to defend your life, un- unfortunately. I have had incidents where a strange vehicle comes up behind me and slows down. Um, I do ready myself, whether ready my phone, perhaps have my mace out in my hand, or I have carried a knife out in my hand, not drawn, but ready for action if need be. And it turns out that that person was benign and they were a worker pulling into a house that I just hadn't recognized those people. It's fine. I don't care that they saw me. Um, they need to see me. I don't care that my dog um, may bark at somebody that's walking. I want people to know that my dog's going to protect me. I'm not going to sick my dog on people, but I certainly want my dog to be under control, and I want people to know that they shouldn't approach me not if they're not invited. It's a very sad state of affairs when you just can't go out for a run and not worry about your safety other than, you know, not getting run over by a car. I also wear a lot of lights like clothing, headlamp, reflective gear, so that I can be seen. Um, I always have my phone. Again, you can't be too you can't be too safe. That being said, I refuse to give up my freedom to be able to go out and run. And I think we all need to help other people defend that right to be able to go out and safely walk and safely walk in the community. So if you see people out and you're walking and running, say hello to them. You know, um, become friends or neighbors with people that may not live on your street, but know people that are out doing the same thing so you can watch out for them, they can watch out for you. It's very important. Um, The more community we can gather together, uh, the safer that people might be. And don't tolerate um, bad behavior by people. Uh, I have called the police on people that were obnoxious uh, while I was running, and I've called it more than once, and I don't regret that either. So stand your ground, go out and run and exercise, but keep your head on the swivel uh, and protect yourself. And finally, if you'd like to know more about our practice, go on over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, and check out the practice. Uh, we have a membership for $25 a month that you can have access to all our online uh, materials and webinars and nutrition classes. Um, and then we have members where you can have a registered dietitian call. Uh, you can have a call consult from myself and a registered dietitian once a month. 
uh, or we can um, take care of you as your primary care cardiologist and registered dietitian completely, no matter where you are. So we'd love to have you on our team. We want to make the community bigger. Uh, we want to make people live longer but live better and get rid of some of those comorbidities that um, it's going to take the wind out of your sails. Take care of your heart because the original equipment is the best you'll ever have. Thanks for listening.